Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. On this week's episode, we're taking a look at the video game industry with my special guest, Joost Vendroinen. Mr. Van Joinen is the co-founder and former CEO of gaming research firm Superdata Research and works as an investor and advisor to startups and investment firms in the video game industry. In addition, he's a lecturer at the NYU Stern School of Business, where he teaches the business of video games. He joins us today to discuss his recent book, One Up, Creativity, Competition, and the Global Business of Video Games. Joost Van Joinen, welcome to Industry Focus. Thanks for having me, Nick. Great to have you on the podcast. Before we dive into to the substance of your book, how did you first get involved in video games? That's a good question. I uh, it was it was really a fool's errand for me personally. Like I ended up, I came to the U.S. in like the time right before the internet bubble burst, and so I ended up going into academia as a result. And in there, one of the most interesting aspects of all things media and entertainment was gaming. Wildly uncovered, uh, under underreported on. You know, there was no research or anything on it. So. As I started to set up my little academic tent, that turned out to be a good decision. And then once that happened, the business kind of came uh, on its own terms. But it's always been a passion of mine. I just didn't realize up until 20 years ago you could actually pursue those things. Right. When you look at over the past 20 years, this growth that we've seen in the video game industry has really been massive. When you compare video games to other forms of entertainment today, like TV, film, and music, where does the video game industry stack up? Compared to other forms of entertainment, the games industry is now $150 billion or so uh, in consumer spending. So that makes it a multiple of music and movies combined, even. And this has been sort of the catchphrase for the last 10 years, right? Like, oh, gaming is big, it's growing, what's going on? Um, what I think is more interesting, though, is that, you know, as audiences shift to new forms of entertainment, both on a consumptive but also productive measure, right? It's we. We now start to see, uh, you know, uh, gamers have got much more direct impact on the type of games that they play and, you know, contributing to those games by building things. Uh, you know, we're no longer just passively sitting on the couch. We're building things together with the creators. And, uh, and so it, it's a whole new dialogue between, on the one hand, an entertainment industry that is large and growing at the same time, like this audience of hundreds of millions of people that all want to somehow participate in their Fortnite universe and their Pokemon Go universe and leave their own mark. So it's a, it's a, it's a, I think, radically different configuration between, you know, the traditional patterns of consumption around entertainment. Right. Well, one of the things I think about when you look at video games is, is what we think of as gamers has really changed over these past 15, 20 years. Correct. So the, so the big affordance over the last few years has been uh, that games are mainstream, right? So the, the catchphrase is everyone's a gamer now. For the longest time, it was always defined by a very narrowly, uh, uh, you know, delineated audience. Right? It was, it was especially younger men, eighteen to thirty-four year olds, uh, you know, playing shooter games or role-playing games in their parents' basement, covered in Cheeto dust. Right? So that's sort of the stereotype. And so they've really grown from out of the basement into sort of a mainstream form, where now you see anybody and everybody on the New York subway playing games. You, you know, in the same way that you see people reading books and listening to music. And so what that has done to the industry, I think, has uh, quite a dramatic shift. Um, but for all intents and purposes, the games industry always was mainstream focused. 
they sort of just lost track of it because of the shifting economics and the incredible cost that would uh, come with developing for newer hardware generations and so on. And so because of that, game companies became very risk averse and they started to really get very stingy with spending and they would only green light very small numbers of projects that they knew were going to be successful and that by catering only to the same sort of audience over and over. In the last few years then we have this, you know, digitalization and the popularization of the smartphone have, has opened the market up. And now you see this wealth of new content uh, trying to meet these audiences. Right. You talk about in this in the book, you say there, there's been kind of two eras to video games so far. You have this period from 1984 to 2008 that you call the games as the product era. Mm-hmm. And then 2008 to today is this games as a service era. What, what really shifted in 2008? So 2008, it's really the, um, you know, the introduction and the popularization of the smartphones or the iPhone specifically. So what Steve Jobs did well was to provide a device that would, uh, you know, harness all the creative energy that you see in the mobile game space. So to give you an indication, pre-iPhone, the games, the mobile games industry was about six, seven hundred million dollars worldwide, most of which was governed by EA, right? So one of the largest U.S. publishers. And, you know, nobody was having a really good time in in mobile gaming. It was a very cumbersome way where, you know, to, to make a living, you'd have to the placate to AT&T and the Verizons of the world at the time, if you wanted to have your game on their platform, on their mobile platform, you'd have to develop the same game 400 times to be compatible with each of the 400 different handset models they'd have in the market at, the, at any point. So it's a total disaster from a creative standpoint. With the iPhone, you start to see this harmonization where all of a sudden it's just one device, one set of hardware specs, and off you go. For 100 bucks, you were a developer, and you can have a good time with that. So that sort of then changes the, the model for a lot of uh, creative firms and consumers because now with their new devices they're starting to look for cool stuff to play and then from 2007 it's really late 2007 uh, early 2008 you know not much happens in terms of revenue but really in 2009 when apple approves free-to-play monetization in its app store and allowing game companies to you know make money by selling in-app purchases with no limits to what you can sell a consumer you end up with like this incredible boon in revenue um, against the background, of course, of very uh, conventional or the legacy publishers having a harder time seeing the value of these new platforms. So there is no apex predators lurking around. You have all these newcomers, a new platform that is uh, governed by this idea of like everybody should be able to make games for this because it's in Apple's benefit to allow lots of third-party content. And it just skyrockets into billions of dollars very quickly. Yeah, you have a quote from the book. Maybe maybe you can expound on this. You say, quote, in the Apple universe, content serves as a complementary asset that increases the use value of its various gadgets and computers. This is the opposite strategy to that followed by most console manufacturers, uh, mm-hmm. where, which sell hardware at a loss to subsidize the sale of content. Does that Correct. explain why the, those legacy publishers missed the boat on the initial growth in mobile gaming? Yeah, so there's... So there's, I mean, there's a lot there to unpack, right? But so for the traditional publishers, the EAs, the Activision, I remember talking to an executive at Ubisoft at the time saying like, what about it? Like, why aren't you on mobile more? And his answer was, oh, look, it's an unproven platform. So I'm not going to take my A-grade franchise and give it a go. Like, we're going to very slowly, you know, uh, uh, you know take, a, take more of an, a, a slow approach to the market rather than jumping in. Uh, and it just created a space where everybody else could uh, kind of run ahead of the incumbents, the deep pockets. For Apple, uh, Apple has this sort of evolved platform economics model, right? So in a traditional console, in the physical model, you would 
really expect people to only buy one console, right? You only get a, a Sega uh, device or you get a Sony device or then later a Microsoft device. And that's because they're three, four, 500 bucks. And then the games are 50 to $60, kind of depending on the generation. So really, rather than buying two devices and stocking each of those devices with a library of interesting titles, you end up doing one device and just spending the rest of your money on, you know, on average 2.4 uh, titles per year. So that was the traditional model. And so the platform economics are rudimentary in that the platform manufacturers would create a relationship with the audience and saying, we're going to subsidize this, we're going to get it marketed, we're going to really push hard, as you see now too in the lead up to the next gen, where it's just all over the news and they're trying to really market it very aggressively so that very quickly we rack up 10, 50, 100 million units of installed devices worldwide, which is then turn around to the publisher saying like, come to us, make content for us that is either a timed exclusive or something novel to our platform because we have all those users. And so traditionally in the physical space, you play the intermediary between the publishers and the audience. Uh, in the Apple universe, it's a more evolved platform economical model in the sense that you have the app store, but really, you know, Apple doesn't care. Apple is a consumer electronics company, right? So they want you to buy a new phone every year and they want you to buy an expensive laptop like I have and all the other devices that they have. And so for them, content is a complementary asset, right? It is not the thing that makes the money as it in, is it in the physical console space. It is cool. You want to spend some money? Yeah, we'll take 30% and we can get into that uh, uh, rate later, but, you know, we'll take a cut and then everybody else is happy, but it just makes it so that our phones have that much more value compared to Android phones and other competitors. So for them, it's a, it's a complementary asset, much more so than critical to the revenue model uh, as they see it. Yeah, when I think about this this rise of mobile gaming, when, when I grew up, I was a 90s kid. I had the Game Boy. There's this whole handheld gaming industry, and that's kind of gone away uh, with the rise of the iPhone and, and mobile gaming is it fair to think of the iPhone as the biggest console platform in the world? No, uh, I, I, I would disagree. But that's because, like you, like I'm, you know, I'm a diehard. Uh, to this, this is a mobile platform, right? Which, not an endorsement for a Switch, although it's my favorite. It's the uh, uh, currently at least, it's the um, you know the, the the true mobile play and mobile gaming experience is very different on a handheld device than this than it is on the phone. So. Mobile gaming is designed really to pass this time uh, sort of on the side, right? You're standing in line and you're sitting on the couch for 20 minutes and you just want to quickly jump into some class Royale or you want to play some title or game that sort of entertains you for a bit, but that's about it. Whereas, you know, the longer, more deeper sort of multiplayer components, uh, solo campaigns, narrative driven games, you'll find those on uh, handheld devices. So while it is in terms of, so I would carve up the universe in PC, console and mobile. So mobile is its own category, and it doesn't really overlap in terms uh, with the, the, the traditional dedicated hardware in the console space, uh, which would also include, of course, portable like a Switch. But that's, and you know, in addition to that, the, the audience is very different for mobile gaming than it is for conventional dedicated hardware. So I wouldn't put them in the same bucket or say that they're the largest. It's really, uh, by revenue, yes, it's, a, it's an impressive uh, device. But they're very, I mean, it's the same difference as saying going to a concert and go and listening to music on the radio. Just the form factor makes it so that they're fundamentally different. A Walkman is not the same thing as a stereo set, right? So that's really the difference for me. Okay, you talked about earlier this idea that the, the growth of mobile gaming, uh, legacy publishers, 
uh, weren't the first to embrace this industry, which has allowed new companies to rise up. One company I wanted to talk about at least briefly was Zynga. This is a company that has been recommended at The Motley Fool in the past. And this is one of those first companies to, to really capture a significant share uh, in this mobile gaming uh, industry as it developed. How did Zynga establish itself in this market? Z- Zynga has uh, been around for a while. So Zynga has a lot of uh, cuts and bruises, let's put it that way. And so, and I think that that's uh, by now uh, working to their benefit. Zynga started really as a web-based uh, poker game maker, right? So they had uh, just their main website on a .com. And then you could buy, you know, money, you know, virtual game currency to play poker. So then Facebook started to become a big deal and Zynga jumped in, right? And Zynga became very quickly the, the largest uh, content provider on, on the Facebook gaming component, on the gaming side at the time, with Farmville and games like it. Um, and it was, and it proved very effective in getting people to stick around on, on the Facebook canvas longer. Um, and of course, monetize that well, right? So they would make lots of money off of the microtransactions. They would be excellent at optimizing, you know, which type of cow and what color cow would sell the most depending on your profile as a, as a Facebook user. And so they've really figured out how to make money, but most importantly for Facebook, they've figured out how to keep you playing longer, right? And so the stickiness of Zynga on the Facebook canvas, that was sort of key to its digital success. Then of course, Facebook started to overhaul the monetary system where everybody had to use Facebook credits as opposed to having your own credits as a, as a publisher just to kind of reduce the uh, opaqueness in the industry and and on the platform for the consumers. And then finally, uh, you know, once everything turned mobile, uh, you know, Facebook was kind of slow to move on that and Zynga was too, you know, against the background of all this other competition flooding into the platform. So that's when Zynga kind of came, went public and then lost a whole bunch of its value. Uh, you know, it was sort of its first peak. Since then, you know, it's shuffled its uh, executive team a few times what it's proven to do really well is to become more of a, you know, uh, a destination that has a particular audience in mind. So rather than trying to be everything to everyone, they're far more focused now on creating experiences and having, you know, sort of a, a step at being a step ahead of other uh, mobile and casual game providers. And that's what they've done really well. So under the leadership of Jibo, you can see that they have this reorganization of its organization. Um, you know, its structure, its studio structure, and also the, the, the creative project that they're working on, um, and the willingness to spend against that, right? So the $1.6 billion acquisition of Peak Games, which is focused on, you know, more hyper casual games. You know, I think that those are things that put Zynga sort of in a renewed light, whereas, you know, after it was sort of thrown out of the Facebook universe or fell out of it, rather, you, know, you see now that they've been rebuilding the empire. And I think to, to a large degree, they've been very successful at that. Yeah, one of the data points I pulled from from your book towards the end, you talk about these new revenue models uh, that we see in gaming. One of which is advertising, and Zynga appears to, at least from your data set, be, be among the most uh, mm-hmm. active in that space. Twenty six percent of their overall revenue in two thousand eighteen derived from advertising. How significant is an opportunity uh, is this advertising opportunity for Zynga and for game makers in general? So I think so the. The, the way that I think about this is, is, is very simply put, gaming has always been a sort of weird industry on the side, right? As we mentioned, um, every form of entertainment, every form of media has some kind of advertising component, either as part of its revenue model or as its entire revenue model, right? And so whether that's sports or film or music, there's always going to be advertising there. You, know, you can't watch any music videos without seeing a cell phone 
or some kind of drink or something being advertised inside the music video while people dance around it in some clumsy way. So advertising is just part of the natural lifeblood of entertainment and media. And it's been sort of odd that gaming hasn't adopted that more. So of course you can talk a lot about like, well, there's this inertia, like maybe decision makers or the creatives, they don't want to be approached. We saw in the 2004, it was, uh, Microsoft spent a bunch of money on the massive, right? To kind of integrate ads into its, uh, into its games. So there's been these attempts before, but I think previously there wasn't any critical mass and there wasn't enough, there wasn't enough people and there wasn't enough diversity in the audience to really attract abundance of advertisers to really spend against it. For a game company like Zynga specifically then, you know, as they've moved from casual into hyper-casual, hyper-casual games are very quick moving games that end very quickly, they're only a very short burst of time that you spend in them. It is way too complex uh, to then ask consumers like, oh, why did you click here a bunch of times and give me your credit card and you can buy a bunch of stuff. What they're gonna end up doing is just show an ad before in the middle and after and that's how they monetize because it's just not reasonable to expect people to quickly grab their wallet while they're trying to do this for 30 seconds, right? So, so as the audience uh, moves towards even faster paced, shorter session, shorter burst session uh, gameplay, advertising then becomes very quickly sort of one of the only reasonable ways to monetize, uh, you know, because it's just not, uh, you, you're not going to sit there and wonder how to spend, what to buy, and all these other kind of uh, decisions you see in a more traditional model. So I think that's how advertising is shifting, but it's still very early days. It's very early days. So, so is there this kind of gap between on the hyper-casual side is, is where you're seeing advertising really gain gain traction, whereas in some of these more AAA mm-hmm. titles, it's still a long way to go there. Yes, absolutely. The, the, the idea that, you know, FIFA has been, FIFA came out uh, recently you know, they will continue to push this idea. It's like, oh, we need to have banner ads in like the soccer stadium and that's going to be so cool and realistic. You have Blizzard saying, hey, it adds to the game. It's like, um, kind of, yes, no, I don't know. Um, but it always feels like an afterthought and never baked into the, the fundamentals of the game design itself. Whereas with hyper-casual games, that is much more, how can we make games that, you know, are sort of on the same level as like a TikTok quick video burst where I can show an ad or do something around a product as opposed to we built this massive spectacle and then, oh, right, let's hang some ads in there at some point, right? I think that that conversation is much easier to have if you start with it rather than do it in the end. So you talk about the, these evolving revenue models when we look at the, the mobile gaming industry. And uh, you mentioned earlier Apple's 30% cut on, on sales in that mm-hmm. in, the, in their app store. What we've really seen evolve over the past year has been this rising conflict between Epic Games and mm-hmm. Apple over that 30% app store tax. Why is now the time that the industry is starting to push back against Apple and why Epic? That's a good one, right? So um, I'll start with the second piece, which is why Epic. So uh, Tim Sweeney, as I know him, is a, is someone who is really into the conservation of ecosystems. So uh, this is someone who's been uh, buying up stretches of land to preserve them around you know, North Carolina. That's his thing, right? He just buys all these swaths of like these acres and acres of land just to protect them. And so he is of that mindset of like, well, you got to, you know, you know, some of it not needs to not be touched to just kind of for, you know, for future generation's sake or whatever. So I think that that's his approach. Like he is as a, as a leader or as a, you know, perhaps as a philosophy, he focuses on the larger ecology or the ecosystem of, uh, you know, both plants and I guess of apps. Um, why now with Apple? I think that the time is there where, 
you know, Apple has been the longest for a long time, the biggest for a long time, and they've been sitting on that. Um, but it's, of course, increasingly clear that as the complexity of, of mobile game design is starting to go up, as the, you know, as the cost of development for mobile has increased and live ops, you know, so, so the, if to take a step back, what's been um, driving the success for Apple and its uh, game creators has been that there were so many people coming into the ecosystem that they could do whatever. And so marketing costs are negligible. That has now shifted. Marketing is now much more, you know, duck and weave kind of exercise. It's expensive, but it's also just more, there's more complexity to it. And so that just makes it so that the margin decreases. And so then you start looking around saying, well, why are they getting 30%? Because all I see is I'm having a harder time, you know, reaching the audience that wants to play my content. So Apple then uh, is really the king uh, in that, that conversation uh, where you see every other Apple, st- uh, every other digital storefront charging 30%, you have to eventually wonder, it's like, well, this is a prisoner's dilemma, right? Why would everybody maintain that, 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 that ratio as opposed to dropping it 10% or even further so that they'll have some exclusive content or maybe some timed exclusive content coming to their platform. Uh, Epic has successfully done so with Steam, uh, owned by Valve, you know, digital PC distribution platform. For years, they were king of the hill until uh, Epic launched the Epic Game Store. Uh, and instead of 30, charged 12%, which is a huge boon, of course, for creators, especially small, medium size, which is where generally most of the innovation comes from. So that really keeps those companies alive in a big way. It preserves the ecosystem, if you will. So then Steam relented and now does a tiered structure, right? It goes from 30 to 25 to 20, kind of depending on how big you are. Um, and so it worked there. So I think that, you know, to answer it in one question, in, in one phrase, is that Tim Sweeney has been looking at this for a long time, has booked some success on the PC market, now goes after Apple and the mobile market. And Apple really doesn't have a lot to stand on. I mean, perhaps, yes, legally, it's certainly, but, you know, competitively, everybody's charging this ridiculous amount and you kind of have to wonder why. So I think it's uh, the size of the market uh, and the, the timing of the success of like a Fortnite that really uh, drives this moment. Yes. Yeah, so, so as you mentioned, uh, there was this big tailwind of growing user base in, in the iPhone, which helped support mm-hmm. growth of the industry. Is it fair to say now that this mobile games industry is maturing or has matured? It's uh, we're getting we're getting to the stage where the novelty is certainly wearing off. And, you know, for me, a clear sign in an entertainment market that it's starting to mature or perhaps even saturate is when marketing expense goes up, right? So we can spend a lot of time throwing money at tech by making things more efficient, by trying to improve uh, advertising and marketing budgets and so on. But really, it's, of course, like, well, how many games can you play in one go? Uh, You know, and are people still as eagerly looking for new content? And if you look at the top 10 or the top 50 titles that make most of the money in, the, uh, in all of the app stores, really, it is consistency, you know, there's, there's 80% of them are the same year in, year out. So you have to kind of wonder, you know, what are those incumbents, those, those companies in the top of the, up the list, what are they spending, right? And so their budget for marketing has to go up every time. And then as a newcomer or as a competitor, like, well, how do you find a parking spot at this place? You know, like there's... It's so competitive and the, and the walls get higher that um, I think to call it saturated is probably but it's maturing and that we're now moving to this different stage of the game where you see Apple, for instance, meddling with the IDFA. So they're very much aware of like the element and the, and the value of the marketing component, which tells you that it's just a much tougher market to uh, be in, which is, in my mind, maturing therefore. Right. The, the business model innovation is now in the past and we're now optimizing the, those business model innovations. 
it's though I think that that continues to be the case. I think business model innovation is still at the same level. I think it's the the conditions among under which or the demands of the market are now different, right? Whereas previously, you know, people would get their phone; they'd never had a, a smartphone before, and they would figure out how to swipe by way of playing Angry Birds because that's what the game teaches you to do. And so that's exciting, and people. But so now we all know how it works, and now we know what's up there. And so it really comes down to like, well, what what are the other features and benefits to me as a consumer? And you know, we haven't seen that much uh, innovation there. So I think the innovation on the, on the device itself has kind of slowed down. Whereas the first iPhone came out, it blew everybody away. You 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 know, you must remember this too. But you, that was like there's 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 a before and an after the iPhone release. And so, but since then, it's been incremental improvements. Right? It's like okay, we have a slightly better camera, and we get this face recognition. That's all very cool, but it was never on the same level as like that first iPhone or that first few iterations of the iPhone. And so now it's down to content and that's a very different uh, uh, area to innovate in. And Apple needs to facilitate that ecosystem better because it cannot control all the components anymore like that. Yeah, we'll see how things develop in this, this battle between Epic, excuse me, mm-hmm. between Apple and Epic. I, I wanna transition now, we, we've, we've started off talking about mobile gaming and how that's really changed the industry to this games as a service model that mm-hmm. you discuss in the book. You discuss in that leading up to 2008, uh, you just define the game market as this games as a product uh, phenomenon. Is that era over or, or, or has it just changed? It's a, uh, so by and large, it's going to be replaced uh, during this generation of the hardware for the console hardware. So. Let me rephrase that. The era of games as a product is ending, uh, but it will never completely die. Right? And so the, the reason I say that is because, uh, you know, it's still a healthy business to go to GameStop and Best Buy and Walmart to buy games. Uh, you see that Microsoft recently did a partnership with GameStop. It spiked its, uh, its, its share price to like 15 bucks almost, mm-hmm. you know, after it was down to 280 back in March. So, you know, and I've been for years working on this case study thinking like, when is GameStop going to like peter out? And so it just won't, it won't go away. And even if GameStop gets acquired or somebody buys the, the franchise or whatever and, and rolls it out as its own storefront, you know, consistently we will still see people trying to get together. In fact, uh, my expectation for the retail component is that we're going to see an increasing integration of like retail sales, whether that's consoles and, t- and games uh, or merchandise in the form of like esports jerseys and your favorite team, as well as events and other things, right? It's going to be this amalgamation of stuff that you do, you sort of like game temples, if you want to call them that, where you just go to spend time with others in the same way that the Tower Records back in the day wasn't just a distribution point. It's like you would hang out with the other cool kids, uh, you know, and you'd meet artists and everybody would sort of be cooler than, than uh, cooler than cool. So retail and games as a product will sustain itself for a long time because that's how people operate. They are very physical people. We want to hang out with other people and share those things with other people. Uh, however, the efficiency of digital distribution and digital dissemination and the revenue models that come with it and the accessibility of those revenue models, that's going to be 80% of the business soon enough, right? So if you draw a line and you look at the um, full game downloads on consoles and compare it to unit sales month in, month out over the last six years, you see that it's been, uh, you know, about 12% in 2014, and now we're coming up on 45%. So you can expect that in the next few years, uh, and particularly in the current upcoming generation, the ninth generation of the hardware consoles, of the console cycle, you end up with uh, a moment where it's going to reverse. And so suddenly then we'll see digital being uh, the biggest uh, revenue driver and revenue, revenue stream 
in the console space. Yes. Yeah, so, so you mentioned GameStop. I, I did want to ask about that briefly. We're, we're in, as you mentioned, we're in this new console cycle. GameStop has historically been uh, the, the biggest specialty re- retailer in, in the video game space. David Gardner, mm-hmm. uh, Motley Fool co-founder, ha- has a, a thing he likes to use called the snap test. Right? If you snap your finger and this company disappeared overnight, would people notice? Uh, and you mm-hmm. talk about the, this evolution of the games industry to more of a, a services base model, moving away from this product model. Does GameStop still pass that snap test for you? So that's a really good question. So I think that it's, you know, if it, if it was gone, would anybody care, right? Uh, I, I, think, I think there would still be gamers out there that really, you know, you have to understand that the fundamental basis is uh, that same audience that still goes to the movie theaters, which of course in a COVID uh, circumstances now, it's not the most not the most convincing arguments to make, but you end up with game specialty games retailers are not just good because uh, you know they're better than Walmart. They're better because there is used game sales. They has a lot of knowledge in the clerks, and so there's a lot of merit still to sort of the GameStop offering. Uh, you know, when uh, mom and dad buy something for Joey during the holidays, you know, to my mom, every device was a Nintendo, right? And so I was like, well, so how do you navigate the space? Like, well, so that's what those stores are still for, right? Every mall will have one because, you know, if you go to the regular retailers, like they don't care they you know, like, try to buy a TV at Target or try to, so, so the, the, the expertise of the, of the, of the staff isn't there um, or even the interest for that matter. And so I think for those reasons, you're still going to have need for a specialty retailer, uh, but you have to ask yourself the question, like, does it need to be at the scale of 6,000 retail outlets worldwide? And I think that that's, that's going to be both in terms of traffic, but also just the, the overhead of retail and, and real estate. It's going to be murder on their books. And so they're just going to have to reduce their footprint long term. Yeah, I think yeah, 5,000 plus stores stores globally. I, I don't think anyone can foresee a, a world where that happens. You talk about in the book, and maybe I want to bring this up, maybe why GameStop ended up with that strategy. Both GameStop and Nexon you use as, as case studies about how businesses mm-hmm. in the past went out of their way to try to be within biking distance of, of as many yes. customers as possible. That's right. So the, you know, so GameStop has traditionally done that well because, you know, they're just foot traffic. And so you see everything that they do, you can relate back to this, this, this one question, like what's best for foot traffic, what drives traffic to the store. And they've never deviated from that. Right. So in the early eighties and then right around the time when they spun off from Barnes and Noble, it was really all about building the brand and building just economies of scale, saying oh, we're going to buy electronics boutique and a whole bunch of other firms and just make this sort of Frankenstein monster of retail. And then they figured that out. Um, you know, of course, they kind of suffered when, you know, we had sort of a, a little softer couple of generations with the, on the console side. And of course, digital strategies by publishers allowing themselves to kind of renegotiate their position with this retailer. You know, so it, it's been an, a very tough model for them all the time. But all of their decisions go back to how many people can I get into the store? Because once they come to the store, I can start converting them to spending, right? And that's what the loyalty card is for. That's what Game Informer, the magazine is for, right? It's, it's Game Informer, this magazine that they give out for free, basically. Um, that one is almost 100% of the gaming magazine circulation in both the US and the UK nowadays. So they're really aggressive about getting to the store and come, come talk to us. And, you know, it's one of the few stores where in, when you enter it, like the clerks will address you right away. They'll come right at you. Um, if you compare that to say what uh, uh, Nexon did with MapleStory, right? So 
this is a free-to-play game on PC that was browser-based. Sorry, it was a download, but you could get it off the browser back in the day. They figured out that their biggest clientele was, you know, young kids, the, you know, the BMX uh, age, if you will. And so they did not want to have them uh, drive to, you know, some kind of place to buy the, the prepaid cards because, you know, children like underage minors at the time. So the larger context was credit cards at the time of MapleStory were raising the minimum age right, from 18 to 21. And so it was very difficult to monetize younger audiences because they don't have credit cards. And even, I guess, ostensible adults, they wouldn't have credit cards. So to get them to monetize, they would do prepaid cards. So they could take all of their pocket money and buy a $5 or $10 MapleStories card. So to do that, they would have to go to the store or they would ask mom and dad, can you drive me uh, to go to this place? And so they figured out that uh, doing a deal with 7-Eleven was much more uh, successful for them because kids could reach those places on their own. And so that's when you start to see that relationship where retail then plays a critical part in monetizing audiences that conventionally for traditional publishers, in this case, of course, the, the domestic ones in the US compared to Nexon, which is from South Korea, uh, you know, they had never thought of any of this. Are those concerns still relevant today, making sure you have access to prepaid cards and things like that so, so kids can can go buy them or, or have, have customers become more accustomed to buying things online such that that's less of a concern today? It's it's less of a concern. And, and the reason is, uh, it, as a you know, if I wear the market research hat for a second, I would say gamers are the canary in the coal mine for many, many behaviors uh, on the Internet. Um, so when we studied payment preferences for gamers back in like 2012, and you know that 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 case study of uh, MapleStory and Nexon sort of sits in the middle of that, uh, we realized that you know all of the behaviors that you see among this tech-savvy early adopter audience that is not afraid to like throw five bucks at some game to buy a digital hat, right? Um, all of those behaviors are five years later more commonplace among a mainstream consumer base. And so gamers are that canary, the sort of you know early mover on a lot of things. And so while today you see a lot of those uh, things in place that didn't exist back then, right? And so I like that um, gamers are some of a, a vanguard or an avant-garde consumer base. And so over time you start to see uh, you know uh, you know consumptive patterns or behavioral patterns or you know how they learn about stuff, things like live streaming. You know, it's a big deal now. It was a, it's been a big deal with gamers all along. Like something like Twitch, it used to be gamer TV, right? It was only for, and so it starts to become more mainstream. And now we have music events. The music industry is opening up with like concerts like Travis Scott and you know Marshmallow, of course. And so all of those consumer bases in music, they are far several years behind on what we saw earlier among gamers. Yeah. So. so- one great example uh, about that, about how, how gamers were kind of in the vanguard as we transitioned to, to PC games briefly, is Valve's Steam, very early 2000s, pioneering this digital purchasing model. Can you talk about the significance of that platform for the growth of PC games? Oh, yes. So, so PC gaming was, uh, PC gaming had basically lost to the console. That was, the, uh, that was the, uh, the opinion shared by most of the executives in the industry, right? So uh, in many ways, um, you know, after the industry collapsed in the 80s, you then start to see this resurgence, this sort of renaissance, because Nintendo is just rebuilding uh, the console business. And then to the point where eventually its model of like having everybody pay in so that they can collectively market the device and build and grow the user base, uh, all the publishers were on board. And they're like, yo, this is great. I only have to make one, uh, you know, one hardware. I have only have to deal with one set of hardware specifications. 
and I can just, and it's a walled garden. So piracy is a no brainer. There's none of those issues. So a lot of the content creatives, as their budgets started to increase and started to spend more money, they wanted the lower risk and console was just the best solution to that. So the reverse of that is of course, PC has a lot of different hardware specifications and you know, digital distribution was always regarded as like a scary thing, right? In the same way that music and film regarded digital distribution with, with skepticism saying, it only leads to piracy, right? You wouldn't download a car, right? But here we are downloading all the other stuff. Um, for those reasons, I think the PC market has always been sort of this ignored component. It was only 5% of total revenue in the early 2000s. And here then in 2003 comes uh, Valve, right? First with its own games, right? So these are, the two founders are these Microsoft millionaires. So they have no budget and they have nothing but time to do what they want. And they postpone, postpone, and then eventually release Half-Life. Huge hit, you know, uh, it redefines what it means to play a first person shooter game. That's this immersive narrative, like you're addressed directly. It's a real story of a twist and turn, all this stuff. But people loved it. In 2003, Valve comes around and they bring out this brilliant title. And to really keep that going and to send out iterations, they start to then uh, you know, distribute uh, some of the content digitally, right? So they come out with this thing called uh, Steam. And it was originally really just meant so that they could update their own titles over time, right? So at this point they have Half-Life, but they also have Counter-Strike and they have, they're working on Team Fortress. They figured out that online playing was a big deal for people, but you know, and it allows you to forge the ability to then send updates down the pipe rather than having to work around this like gold master every time. You can just do iterative design and like add levels and add features and it's much more interesting thing. But rather than doing it only for their own titles, which is what you see you know, in the more vertically organized things like EA Origin or Battle.net for Activision, uh, you know, they said, well, we're gonna be a platform for everybody else. And that very quickly led to like this audience of like 15 million people actively creating and downloading content on the Steam platform. And it dramatically changed how people came to regard the PC, right? So after it had been this big deal and then became uh, very small after losing to the console for so many, in so many words, uh, it then at this, uh, this whole renaissance, where today I think it's around $35 billion a year. So it roughly uh, you know, comes down to like a third of the market, which is remarkable for a, basically a dying category. One of the things you talk about in the book a little bit is the importance of this modding community. You look at Counter Strike, one of the one of the most uh, popular games when it comes to competitive sports, that sort of thing, and that started mm -hmm. as a mod from Half Life. That's that's correct, right? So Counter Strike, as I recall it back in two thousand, was this really clunky sort of add on, right? And so Half Life was the source code they gave Valve distributed the source code so that others could make stuff for it. Uh, and that then eventually turned into Counter-Strike, which is really five against five, rather than like having a single player shooter campaign. It was uh, five terrorists, five counter-terrorists and whoever last standing wins and all these different maps. And then of course it came all down to speed and the sort of customizations of the weapons uh, and how you would sort of navigate the map as effectively as possible. And then of course also like how, how souped up is your PC? Do you have like 60 frames a second or is it like, you know, more than that or less than that? Um, and it was a clear spin-off of, of just a fundamental code, but the, the users took the code and made it into something new. I think that that was, um, you know, one of the first real uh, large-scale commercial successes of uh, user-generated content that we see more uh, prevalent, becoming more prevalent today. 
Yeah, one of those uh, areas I think about, you know, when I when I was so I'm 27. When I was in high school, Minecraft was in beta, and I remember playing Minecraft on on the PC. And now, you know, it's the biggest uh, game, uh, you know, uh, on the planet, or at least for it was mm-hmm. for a while. This idea that you know these these new uh, game styles get developed on PC and then break out uh, into mm-hmm. into the overall market, like like Minecraft did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, you know World of Warcraft back in the day was a big deal. Right? I mean, it had like 15 million subscribers at the time. So it wasn't just like a bunch of oddball people playing as it became mainstream, right? And so it was really a precursor. And so naturally, as things become that big and that accessible, people start to mess about with it. But right? you see the same, there's a really rich history of, uh, you know, and I'm sure you know this, but so really in effect, what, what Gabe Newell did with Valve and with, with things like Counter-Strike by recruiting all these super users to become partial developers or contribute to the game in some way, he got that model from Doom. Right, from its software, which created Doom back in the 90s. And they put it out through shareware, you know, long before the internet was as visual as it was now. And so that people would create the, um, uh, you know, all these additional levels and these sort of customizations to the, to the fundamental Doom game. And then that allowed it to become this much bigger thing as well, right? And so Gabe Newell basically just copied and pasted that idea of saying like, well, we should, we should give other people a chance to build it because I could hire a hundred brilliant people to build it, but I could never recruit a hundred thousand people worldwide and have them do it on their own. And but but comes from that audience, from that huge group of people, is so much more refined and so much more interesting in some ways. So it's a it's it's a really interesting way to kind of look at innovation in the industry. Like the the open nature of PC has really allowed a lot of innovation to kind of bleed into other areas as well. Yeah, you talk about how how the PC has influenced uh, the the overall market. We're seeing now all these platforms converge into one. We've seen with with Fortnite this emergence of, mm-hmm. of cross cross platform gaming. How, how significant is that shift to, to where gaming is going into the future? Yeah, so it's a, it's a cross play is I think critical to the next uh, period in the games industry in that uh, you know the success of like a PUBG or a Fortnite that we've seen over the last few years. That's cool, right? And so that was interesting. And it was interesting particularly because Fortnite was the one that broke the barriers, right? So they convinced all of the walled garden proprietors uh, to play nice together so that you would have no problem as a, Sony, as, a, as a PlayStation player to play with someone on Switch or play with someone on their iPhone. Everybody was happy. One big kumbaya game experience. And if you think about it, it's totally ridiculous that, you know, if I'm an AT&T subscriber, then I can't call you on your Verizon phone. It's nonsense. So I think for the the true network effects to, to kind of take hold and to really give us the benefit of all this technology it's like look whatever device you're using cool if you want to tinker on your pc or if you're just cool sitting on the couch with your with your tablet have at it but isn't it cool that you can play and we can sort of in a synchronous way all experience and share this content as opposed to you're over there doing this and i'm over there on my own server and I think that that's a big innovation compared to say World of Warcraft, which would still put people in servers, like you would have two thousand people per shard or whatever. So nowadays, it's a it's a it's a much more uh, asynchronous and sort of simultaneous experience that, because of the disappearance between all these, uh, you know, these of the, the separations between these platforms, you end up with just that much more uh, enthusiasm from the consumer base. So I think it's critical to the success in the next ten years. 
it raises the question again, like I, like I asked earlier about the Epic and Apple fight is, is mm-hmm. why now, right? That there's been, there's, there's been this incentive for, for a long time to, to have mm-hmm. as big of a pool as possible. Uh, what's driving the shift today? It's a good question. So Apple is proving itself to be very reluctant to share, right? And so they say, well, we want to protect the consumer and we don't want any like nonsense in the app store. We want to make sure that the content is up to par with the Apple, and uh, it doesn't exist, but the Apple value set, right? And so when in fact, of course, they're a consumer electronics company, they necessarily cannot be compatible with everything, right? Um, we just lost the charger from the new iPhone, right? We have to buy that separate. So their business is always about dividing, and conquering things, right? It's just inscribed in the business model of a company like Apple. Um, which is why I think it was significant that, for instance, Sony played nice with Fortnite because Sony is also a consumer electronics company, but they realized like we got to get in on this, otherwise we're going to be left uh, on our own. We don't, we'll never get the critical mass to be relevant after this. And so Apple is now kind of dealing with, on the one hand, of course, its own business interests of, you know, sectioning off this audience and they don't want anybody else mucking about. But at the same time, it is now growing so large that both content creators and consumers are saying. Well, what's what's our share of this platform? Like, where do we sit? And I think it's a question of critical mass. I think it's a question of you know competitive availability of content. There's lots of substitutes, um, and the fact that you know it's going to be uh, an ongoing conversation among leadership on the creative side, saying, well, you have Spotify and Netflix and companies like Epic, all kind of pushing up on that boundary. And Apple is kind of, in my mind at least, you know, while they might have the legal uh, they're legally correct. You have to wonder if they have the moral high ground in all of it. Yeah. So, so you talk about Epic, these company challenging Apple, one of the biggest mm-hmm. tech companies in the world. At the same time, you're seeing other big tech companies like Google and Facebook mm-hmm. try to get involved in the gaming industry. Last year, Google rolled yes. out their Stadia game streaming service. We're recording this on October 26th. Today, Facebook announced their game streaming service. What's the role of big tech in the games market moving forward? Yeah, so big tech is uh, is figured this out, right? So big tech is um, suddenly wakes up. So I mean, I'll, I'll give credit where it's due. Google and Amazon and Facebook and Apple have all contributed uh, in a significant way to the ecosystem, right? In their own way, according to their own uh, strengths and characteristics. Uh, what I think is different now is that they're trying to really push out the incumbents in a way, right? And so you see Amazon Luna, you see Google Stadia, they're promising. Uh, these new technologies as a sign to like, hey, look, we're hip and trendy too. We can also appeal to this gamer demographic. Uh, you know, this is the consumer base that we want to go after, but it also has benefits uh, to our uh, to our uh, to our revenue stream. Um, and I'm not entirely sure that you know their intention. So while I believe that their intentions are correct, I'm, I think their strategy is a little uh, upside down. By which I really mean that if you look at each of their approaches, and then Facebook, as you mentioned, coming out today uh, is of course ad based. And that's sort of an inevitability there and they're figuring out how to make that work. But Amazon and Google are very clearly looking to subscribe you and then of course get you to do unit sales. Um, what they are effectively doing is in the same way that they've done in every other category, they're going to uh, aggressively subsidize content so that you'll sign up for it, which means that it'll be very hard for other companies to maintain price points in other, in other platforms. Right? And so it lowers the value of content in the same way that we've seen it with books and with newspapers and video and music. Um, at the same time, what they're going to end up doing is uh, create this avalanche of just this deluge of new content coming into space. And so it's going to be much more opaque universe as opposed to a neatly organized uh, set of you know, companies that are really leaning in. Uh, 
What that means, I think, for the consumers is really simply put, you're going to have a lot of discovery issues. And that's, of course, where they want to make their money. They want you to spend money with them so that you can advertise correctly, right? You want Google wants you to pay them to navigate and reach your consumer base. And so that, so it goes. Um, I think Amazon is doing the same thing. They're going to basically tease out instead of, you know, going to like a Microsoft where you would say, okay, we're going to launch this and we're going to get these services. Amazon is going to tease all those services separately and charge you. And this is going to cost you more as a content creator. So that's not super interesting, right? But that's how they're going to run their business. Um, and it's going to be, you know, fundamentally, I think, really more of a function of big tech moving towards recurrent revenue bundles rather than having transaction-based revenue as they do now. And I think because of that, that sort of need to diversify and look for more steady, predictable income streams is much more, um, you know, something that works for them, but not necessarily for consumers. Like I haven't seen consumers really asking for this, right? So, so you have to wonder, you know, sure enough, they want to pursue a creative agenda that is honorable and exciting. I think Amazon Prime does a great job in video. I think, you know, there's a lot to say for, you know, Google's role in music and discovery there. But are we really looking at uh, big tech trying to solve a consumer problem? Or is this really just to kind of increase their own share price value by getting a higher multiple for recurrent revenue than anything else? And so that's where uh, I still have a lot of questions. Well, we've seen so far Stadia has had a relatively tepid response. Do you think they'll be successful in getting these audiences? Uh, right now, no. I think that Stadia is, uh, uh, I, I always have to say this, but so as, as personally, as a, as, a, as a consumer, as, a, as an individual, I think Stadia is pretty good. I like it. They were out of the gate quick. They have good enough stuff. I've been playing Doom Eternal. I've been some Red Dead 2. It's there. It's all there. But, you know, like perhaps I spend a little bit more money and I'm willing to take a chance. Um, but I, I like it overall. It seems to be working fine. I have a quick, uh, I have a fast connection here, so it's no problem. What I think that's missing is like the fanfare that you see now with Sony and, uh, and Microsoft coming out. It's like they have these big offerings, these exciting new devices, this big hubbub. And so my anxiety as an analyst around what Stadia is doing, for instance, is that they are promising us the moon and they're going to deliver us just a, you know, a hand of dust. And so you know, the same thing we saw with Facebook when it acquired the Oculus, right? Big fanfare, we're going to go in VR and here's this growth curve about how, you know, social media and technology is going to be this big deal. Cool, but uh, where is that at now? Like, really, where, like, after all that fan? And so it kind of feels like they, they acquire and sort of like, you know, back themselves into these technologies and these, and these uh, categories just to kind of have a horse in the race and to kind of make a bunch of noise about it but they end up promising more than they can deliver, right? They're writing checks, their ass can't cash. And so you end up sort of wondering like, you know what, like, is this going to be good for the consumer base and the creative ecosystem? Or is this just, you know, a perfidious effort? And so I, I'm not convinced as an analyst that, um, that Stadia is going to do well just yet. Okay, another area where, where big tech plays in video games is Amazon's ownership of, of Twitch. We've seen mm. Twitch just grow massively uh, uh, this year, how important is this platform for marketing of video games and just for video game culture in general? It's a I, it's a critical component now, right? So Amazon got lucky, I think, with Twitch. I don't think that they thought it through uh, very well, uh, and you see that sort of in the way that it's sort of still poorly integrated uh, uh, internally, um, and they haven't really given it the the oomph that an Amazon should be doing, right? I mean, you spent billions of dollars and content on video, like. Well, what about Twitch? Like that's that one seems to be working. So I, I I think that they bought a bunch of components and they quite couldn't quite make them rhyme, right? So they bought um, 
double helix with, and then built Amazon Game Studios and they bought Lumberyard and they try to integrate the whole thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that Amazon is set up for it. Nevertheless, Twitch is just this light that won't go out, right? Whereas Microsoft came in with Mixer and it came and it went and everybody knew it from an early stage. When once they bought Beam, you see everybody sort of leaning backwards going like, right, right. And of course, then they end up sending it to Facebook recently which is uh, not to discredit Microsoft, was they kind of had to have an asset, but it just, they couldn't make it work, I think, because Twitch was already so successful. From a content perspective, uh, you know, we see, for instance, EA spending really its time. I mean, it's, it's so telling, but so on the one hand, you have the executive team backing Anthem, their big new IP a few years ago and big fanfare, lots of marketing dollars behind it. And then there's Apex Legends, this free-to-play games, like, well, well, we'll have them kind of run their own show. And so you have this, huge difference between sizes in terms of budget and expectations. And then Apex Legends on its own does the same amount of same number of sales in dollar value as this big anthem that they're releasing. And it had everything to do with an effective use of the Twitch ecosystem where they of course recruited the PewDiePie, sort of the, the ninjas of the world to play the game and everybody was happy and it was very exciting. And then after the money ran out, they kept playing it because it was fun. And so they managed very effectively to use live streaming as a way to market their games. So that's the new thing now, right? You have to have some kind of distributed model and some kind of, you know, these are the disc jockeys for the early music industry, the early radio, where the, the tastemakers and gatekeepers are now blue haired people on the internet with a camera. And so that's where Twitch is still very relevant. Uh, and you see this not just with Amazon, you see it also in Asia where Tencent recently then merged Huya and Duyu the two largest live streaming platforms in the, in the Asian region, uh, you know, basically to outperform, of course, Billy Billy, but it's, you know, they now own two thirds of that market. And it's going to be a very clear channel to promote content and get people to buy stuff and engage them over and over again. And so Twitch sits in that same bucket. And YouTube is a, is a close second in some ways, but that's really it. And so if you can control the marketing channels, that's an incredibly powerful position to be in. You know, one of the things I've, I've thought about Twitch, so one of, the, one of the stories that's come out in the past couple of weeks is AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm. uh, played Among Us on Twitch, got, got an audience of over 300,000. Makes me think about in 2008 when the Obama campaign embraced Facebook, and that really signaled this inflection point in social media coming to the mainstream. Do you think things like this, I mean, we talk about Animal Crossing, the Biden campaign has has an island on, on Animal Crossing. Do you think this this idea of politicians embracing Video games really signals how how mainstream this industry has become. I think politicians they have uh, you know big budgets once every four years and uh, they're highly motivated to try anything and everything to get in front of people. And in this case, I think it uh, it behooves them to you know activate the the younger generation. Uh, but you you know effectively like unlike brands like you know the big ones out of the world, which are much more conservative, uh, they much rather go with conventional mar- marketing efforts like sports and traditional sports, whereas live streaming, where, you know, gaming in general, or even esports, those are all categories that, uh, you know, I think have a lot of promise to them, but it's only when politicians have to just try all of it, which is what they're doing. They're try- I mean, it's not just gaming, they're trying all of it. They would, if people would be still going to movie theaters, they would have spots in the movie theater, right? They don't care, they're totally, they're, but you know, you see how, for instance, an AOC does really well on social media, and she's very likable online. She's sort of like witty and, and, and sharp. Whereas, you know, I see some of the incumbent politicians, they would have a really hard time shining in a Twitch universe, right? And so I think the novelty of the medium lends itself really 
It's part of the narrative that these politicians want to present saying, well, we're new and we're changed and we're trying to you know, make the world a better place and all that. And so gaming is going to be a big part of it because it is an emerging category, right? It's, it's, a, it's something that's been relatively new and it's, uh, you know, everyone's a gamer now. So to talk to everyone, you got to play too, you, you know, it's a, it's, it's the best way to be right. And we saw this decades ago where people would play, you know, you'd have politicians playing football and soccer and it, 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 it humanizes these people, but at the same time, it's also like a great way to relate to them. So, so you're saying, so AOC playing Among Us in 2020 is like Bill Clinton playing the saxophone in the 1990s. Absolutely. 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 It's, you know, it, it's the, if you can hold your own, I mean, imagine this, but if you can hold your own in, a, in Among Us or in Fall Guys or any of the big title games nowadays, right? If you can show some real street cred in terms of gaming and, the, and your ability, that's the equivalent of like throwing a fastball during like the opening season, opening matches of the season, or if you could, you know, throw down in some kind of dance contest, like it's, it's, that's the side that people want to see. And so that, that it makes you, uh, you know, you'll, you'll see the gamer mindset going like, that's our politician now. They represent us because they like us speak the same language. And so I think the, it's what has been largely unexplored is the, the cultural significance of, of, of play as, a, as an instinct. You know, we know it from sports and we know it from like chess and we know it from centuries ago, but the video games have always been regarded sort of in the back as it's moved from the fringes of the entertainment industry to the center and become more mainstream, you know, this is a way for people to relate to each other. Like that's what Among Us is about, right? We're connecting with each other and, and, and having these meaningful exchanges, which while they seem trivial and, and all that, you know, but, but ask any 80 year old politician what it's like for them to play Monopoly with their grandchildren. And you'll know exactly who's wearing the pants in that household and, you know, who sits where, because like it, 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 it clearly tells you the nature of relationships between people. And I think that that's what makes them exciting. So, so, so we talk about this growth, how, how games have become mainstream. Certainly it's, it's an area uh, where there's lots of opportunity going into the future. We're an investing show. So, so for investors, what are some metrics folks should be paying attention to in the, this industry? What should you be tracking to, uh, to, to uh, from an investing point of view? That's a really good question. So um, I think the industry is going, you know, as it's moving away from a product-based business where you have unit sales and average selling price, which is a very easy equation, the future of, of any entertainment will be how many people do you reach and how long do you, do you get to have them? How long will they stay with you? And so it's much more fluid uh, metrics. I think long-term we'll be looking at, you know, what's your overall monthly active user base? Uh, what's your conversion to spending? And then how much do they spend overall, right? And so you will see, for instance, that, uh, you know, in the mobile space, you'll have mobile games that have the most, the most people playing, but they convert very, very poorly. And so as an investor, it's like, okay, well, is that exciting? Is it exciting for you to have reach or is it exciting for you as an investor to have revenue? And so those are the metrics for the digital age. And I think as we move forward to uh, towards more advertising base, it's really about, uh, longevity and engagement. So can we keep people in the ecosystem longer? And how do we do that, right? So so we're back, for instance, to uh, more traditional metrics in the same way that the telecom comp- uh, company looks at it saying, what does it cost to acquire a new user for our AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, whatever? And then how long can we keep them? And so what's the value of that? And then you can just equate from there. So, so I think those are some of the fundamentals as the industry shifts. You know, and it's, but at the end of the day, you see now the economics as they become more mainstream, they are also much more beholden to, you know, hit driven and very quick, rapid uh, exchanges where 
you know, we had these peaks of like World of Warcraft and a bunch, you know, so every generation to have a game that would just pull in all these new players. And nowadays you have things that follow them uh, each other much more rapidly where, you know, Fall Guys was a big deal until Among Us came around. And you know what? I bet you th two months from now we're having this conversation and it's going to be a whole nother game and Among Us will be in the rearview mirror. So so really about, it's not just about reaching in the short term, it's also longevity of the experience and the, and the life cycle of your customer base. Right now, we're on the, the cusp of this new console cycle. You've got uh, the new Xbox and the new the new PlayStation coming out. Xbox and uh, PlayStation pushing towards these subscription models, the, the Game Pass model. What do you foresee uh, playing out here in, in this, this new console cycle? The last time around, Microsoft really got caught flat-footed. Yes, well, that's because Microsoft... Uh, priced it at like five ninety nine, and you had to get the Connect. And I think I don't think anybody was waiting to have a Connect in their house, uh, per se. You know, I mean, it's a it's a wonderful device, but I think at the time the sentiment was a little uh, negative on like you know data protection and privacy. And like, why would I have like an eyeball of some corporation in my house, right? And I think that that so I think they they uh, they made a few uh, missteps there. Uh, what we see now, I believe that uh, you know for the coming generation. You have on the one hand the PlayStation and really the Xbox. So those are just two conversations. Uh, whereas traditionally we would talk about like you know the console wars and you know how these two like titans are clashing. And you know for all intents and merit, uh, intents and purposes, two generations ago it was uh, really an equal game between the PlayStation Three and the Xbox Three Hundred and Sixty. The current generation, the PlayStation Four and the Xbox One, uh, you know Microsoft is second runner up by a ratio of two to one. So they, I mean, if you want to express it in war terms, then Microsoft lost the console wars in the eighth generation, uh, but they still have about uh, 57 million install base. So they're, they're doing fine. They're, they're printing their own money. They're good. For the next one up, it's like, it's really about the innovation that they can offer, right? And so you see now Microsoft getting entirely out of that console war by saying, we're going to be platform agnostic. We're going to give you the game pass. You can play all this stuff and you can have a good time with that. And at the same time, you know, it also prevents us from having to kind of compete head on with like a Sony, which is a formidable uh, competitor in that they have great studios, great content. And so they're each kind of bifurcated. The, the, the console market is bifurcated and they each go in their own way. And I think that that makes it so that whereas in the traditional sense, they are competing, but uh, not, I think less now. And so I don't think it's entirely fair to talk about who's going to be a winner. I think that they will each do really well in their own right, but they have very different challenges ahead of them. Right. So, PlayStation needs to sell lots of units, and they will sell many units, right? I, yeah, I, I would not be surprised if they get the same number of installs, uh, you know, five, six years in, uh, as we see in the current generation. So, you know, I don't think 100 million installs is unachievable for PlayStation. All I think that they'll actually uh, they'll make that number. Um, for Microsoft, it'll be a little more, uh, it'll be a lot less. Uh, but I think that what they're really trying to do is make the device cheaper and move. Uh, to multiple platforms, right? So I can play their games on my iPad too, or on my Android devices, and it's no problem. So they're reaching, or they're going into a more of a reach model where they want to have hundreds of millions of people playing and spending money in their services rather than necessarily buying their hardware. I think the hardware is really just for a subset of uh, their user base, whereas for PlayStation, it's the entirety of their user base. Is it fair to say that PlayStation is going after more of a, a dedicated gamer market, whereas Microsoft is going for a more more casual gamer? I think that's fair. I think if you look at the content offering and the overall marketing messaging, Microsoft is much more about 
gaming for everyone, you know, and, and they have a, a, a wide variety of different categories available. And you could, of course, you know, kind of pick and choose and say like, well, is it as highbrow as we see elsewhere? It's like, yeah, kind of, kind of, maybe not. Um, but I think it's really the uh, the tailoring of the office and the inclu the inclusiveness of the office, right? In the same way that you see that sort of for a video streaming services, like there's there's plenty of stuff there. There's something for everyone. Fifteen bucks for a Game Pass uh, is no brainer, or you know, uh, Xbox Live uh, subscription. They're not they're not asking for lots of money. And I think particularly what's clever this time around, and what I think will prove to be an innovation to the business model is offering the devices under the same circumstances as cell phone manufacturers that sell smartphones. It's 20 bucks a month and it gets you the device and a subscription to content and you can go nuts, like have fun. And then for 20 more, 24 months, you pay me as opposed to going to the store and spending $500 and 60 bucks for a game. It's a very different proposition. So that's their approach there. Whereas PlayStation has always differentiated itself with much more uh, of the mindset of like a, a the company that makes movies and makes music, which of course they do also. But I think they've copied and pasted that blueprint saying, we're going to buy the best studios. We're going to buy spectacular content. We're going to have God of War. We're going to have Last of Us Part Two, And it's going to be these fantastic epics that you cannot not, you must play those. Um, but it, it caters to a very different audience. And I think for that reason, I think it's, uh, we're going to see, I think, uh, uh, we, we're seeing with Microsoft and, and, and Sony sort of bifurcating and going their own, uh, own direction. We're seeing something that happened with Nintendo too when they said, we're going kind of low-tech with the Wii and we're going to just cater to everyone. I think that that was a very big surprise for a lot of people. It was accessible, a lot of people had fun with it. And that proved to be one of its biggest successes in its history. Um, and so we may very well be looking at one of Microsoft's biggest successes coming up. But Sony is going to lead the, lead the charge. Absolutely. All right, yeah, so we're running a little bit long. But I've got like three more questions and then I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, let, you, I'll let you go. Um, so from an investing point of view, you're someone who, who you know, uh, advises companies in this space. Mm -hmm. When you look at this industry today, what segments, sectors, or companies are you most excited about uh, today? So I'm always excited about the areas where there's some novelty, uh, but particularly novelty that's built on like decades of pre-existing behavior that just didn't quite make it yet, right? And so... One of, uh, one of the things that I'll always be skeptical of is like VR, uh, just to give you the example, but because that we've been talking about VR for decades, right? It's the virtual boy and then all these other iterations. It's always going to, virtual reality is this perfect technology because like the emerging markets of Brazil, it's always gonna be in the future. It will always be that, it will always be emerging. And so it's perfect. We can invest in that until we're like 80 years old and uh, you know we'll probably never see it in any of our lifetimes. So I'm skeptical of that. What I like is then uh, to be closer to things like that really are prescribed in human behavior. Rather than having big tech firms or big content creators or platform companies come up with some new gizmo and say, this is going to be the new thing. I think what we're really looking at is, you know, people taking more charge of their own content. And so I think in that context, the, uh, uh, the IPO of a company like Roblox and the investment that we see in this space that is focused on making it possible for users to participate in the creation of the world that they're in. I think that that's a really important part, right? So digitalization and the emergence of microtransactions really had a lot to do with people wanting to, you know, look a certain way, present themselves a certain way. They wanted to have a cool outfit, funny dances, all this stuff. And so that's, that's a, that's a way where that's, you can sell against that. And that was also a big part of the success of Tencent in its early days, right? The, 
ability to sort of sort of socially distinguish yourself by purchasing these assets. I think that that's been what's been driving the current growth for the future. I think we're going to see the next thing after that, which is, you know, my kid has no problem going into Minecraft and spending hours building some elaborate universe. The only thing missing is then for me to put it online and charge five bucks to the next guy, right? So, so the monetization or the the more freely sharing of user generated content and how that contributes and changes games. I think that content creators and IP owners are still struggling with that. And whoever finds the answer to that, I think it's going to uh, going to be very successful. So I would look for those type of things. Right? It's uh, it's always been right across right around the corner, and I believe that we're going to start seeing it in the next few years in a big way. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that that's you, you saw this year with Animal Crossing. That's a big part of that. You customize your island and all those sorts of things. And that that's been one of the most Absolutely. successful games this year. And obviously, Roblox is, is in a is in a similar category. So when we talk about games today, there's lots of this conversation about huge changes for gaming. We're going to have game streaming or VR, as you mentioned, or all these sorts of things. What aspects of video games do you think are going to be the same ten years from mm-hmm. now as they are today? Ten years from now. So I think it's. Um, I think games have always been about sort of the social aspect for it, at least for me, you know, and they say this, uh, not just in, in a personal sense, but also as an academic researcher and as an analyst, like wherever you see other people do stuff, it's uh, it's because, uh, you know, there's this critical mass. Um, when you walk around in New York, uh, you see two types of restaurants. There's restaurants that are packed with a line outside and the restaurants that are empty. And then nobody wants to go sit in an empty restaurant, right? So gaming, uh, the equivalent there would be like, well, I bought an Xbox because all of my friends have Xboxes. And so that's why I live in this universe now and they play these games. And I grew up with Halo and not something else because of these reasons. So I think what's going to continue to determine things is like how people interact and sort of the social layer will tell you and will indicate to you what's going to happen. And so whatever we can do to facilitate uh, around that, you know, it's, it's what's going to be the same is uh, people wanting to play with other people. And so... However, we can give that more rise, that's cool, but that's always going to be part of it. And whoever deviates from that, right? And I think, uh, you know, uh, we could talk about walled gardens and consumer electronics and all this stuff, but if you start preventing that from happening, if you're going to make it impossible for people to share or to, to do this, then it's going to be a harder time. And so, uh, and that would be a deviation. You must facilitate sort of the social aspect of it at all times. And so that's always been the case. And I think we're going to continue to see that. And of course, the the fundamentals, right? So blockbuster titles always runs the show, will never go away. I think the long tail was a wonderful dream, but that's not going to happen. I think what we're going to see is just massive hits after massive hit after massive hit coming out, perhaps at a faster pace, but the industry will still be very much like geared towards two, three wildly successful companies, and that's it. So a lot of the economics will stay the same, even as uh, the, the technological foundations shift over time. That makes sense. It makes me think about think about how, how we see in movies lots of re, lots of reruns and that sort of thing. That mm-hmm. same dynamic dynamic in this kind of interactive entertainment um, category. On the other side of things, what's your biggest question about games going forward and over the next ten years? There's a there's a few. So I guess um, what really um, so the way I would put it. So one of my so I guess an, an industry question is like okay, so this question of advertising, like okay, how is that going to happen? Right. So I think it's always been part of it. It's always been sort of on the fringes. But when is that going to take center stage? Uh, so I kind of postulate or sort of, you know, uh, think about this. Uh, I guess in the final chapter of the book too. But it's a it's a question of like when is this going to work out? When is this going to be so big that you know P and G and all these other companies are going to just kind of open up their wallets in a big way and say, we now own. Uh, uh, things in the same way that 
detergent companies created soap series for us, right? Uh, you know, and, 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 and you see the US military sponsoring swaths of Hollywood production. You know, when are those type of industries going to really truly invest uh, their full budget in games? And we've seen some uh, antecedents there, some, some predecessors in the form of like uh, uh, the US Army had like a, had like a, a, a recruiting game, right? It was sort of a, a, a synthetic universe where you could play a soldier and sort of the recruitment process of a soldier. Uh, so we've seen some of those uh, instances before, but my question would be is like, when are we going to start seeing these really big billion dollar businesses putting their full weight behind something like this? And how is that going to affect the creative output of this industry, right? In the same way that it's very easy for us to say like, well, clearly in China, they're trying to make movies and therefore real estate businesses are, you know, either making them say things or preventing them from saying things in these movies. And clearly in India, there is, you know, certain cultural parameters that make it so that certain things are wildly popular and some things are totally not. Uh, and so when we look at the games industry now, as it rises to, uh, to its true size, these large billion dollar businesses are going to affect what rolls out of it. And I'm very curious to see what that will look like. We'll be watching the industry and, and hope to... Uh... I can't be back on maybe sometime in the future to talk about it. reminder everyone the name of the book is one up creativity competition and the global business of video games yost thanks so much for joining us on the podcast thanks for having me nick i appreciate it thank you as always people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and the motley fool may have formal recommendations for or against the podcast let me do that again as always people on the program may own companies discussed on the show and the motley fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear thanks to taylor harris for mixing the show for yost and i'm nick cycle thanks for listening and fool on